RadioInfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather Podcast. As always, I ask that you rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. And check us out on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, and we did take down our TikTok account. So just check us out on those other three places. Uh, we took it down due to some of the concerns of uh, some hacking. So check us out on social media there. And our listener question that you're going to get later today does come from one of our Facebook followers. So yeah, good place to reach out to us. I try to respond to every message that we get and every comment that we get on those platforms. So please reach out to us there. As always, you can reach me at 855-LAWFATHER. You can call or text that phone number. And today, you know, we are getting ready this week for Major League Baseball to start its 60-game season. So here we are in 2020. Uh, we are in the middle of July, towards heading towards the end of July here. And we are starting something brand new with baseball in a 60-game season. And it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, normally 162 games for those of you who follow it religiously. For the more casual fan, they may not realize that there's that many games played in a season. But I think you're going to see uh, some interesting things play out over a 60-game season. Some teams that may otherwise wouldn't have been in contention over such long of a season uh, can make it through a 60-game season. Uh, depth on your roster becomes very, very important as you move through with more and more games. So, And I think that's one of the biggest difference makers between teams. All these guys are extremely talented and all are you know, the best in the business. And it just really comes down to how many guys on your roster are the best of the best to make it through injuries and fatigue and everything else that comes along with a with 162 game season, with a 60 game season, I think you're going to see some differences there. But that is enough for the sports talk radio side of the show. But we are going to keep it right in sports, and we're going to keep it fairly local here to Tampa, or at least a local tie-in. Uh, as you may know, I grew up in South Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia, so really close to the Phillies. Uh, we tape the show here in and our. Uh, Law offices are in Tampa and Riverview, and the Philadelphia Phillies have their spring training in Clearwater, so everything really encompassed here in the Tampa Bay area. So this is a national piece, but it also really covers a really local aspect as well. And keeping along the baseball realm, uh, we do have the Philadelphia Phillies, and they are embroiled in some litigation. And it comes from really, I think, an unlikely source is the Philly Fanatic. Yes, the Green Goblin, that is the Philadelphia Fanatic, is up for uh, up for a debate and the source of some litigation that's going on right now. So, if we take a look back, thirty five years ago, there were uh, there was an artistic group that created the Philadelphia Fanatic, or at least the concept of the Philadelphia Fanatic, and they sold it to the Philadelphia Phillies. And the Philadelphia Phillies and this artist group reached an agreement and. In this agreement, this contract, if you will, the Phillies purchased the rights to the Philadelphia Fanatic for a couple hundred thousand, and it was what they termed forever, that the Phillies would take ownership of the Philadelphia Fanatic forever, and the, and they would now own the copyright of the Philadelphia Fanatic forever. So that's where this this story starts is... 35 years ago, the Philadelphia Phillies purchasing this copyright to the Philadelphia Fanatic. Now, look, a lot happens over 35 years, and you may be sitting there wondering, 
Well, why is 35 years important? Well, there is federal copyright law that says after 35 years, the original creator of copyright can go back to whoever they have sold that copyright to and renegotiate the rights. So we have a contract between the artists and the Phillies that says the Phillies own the mark forever. We have a federal statute that says, well, yes, uh, yeah, maybe, but you have 35 years, and after 35 years, you can renegotiate that. And one of the major tenets of contract law is you can't contract to something that is essentially illegal. So in this case, if the statute says it's 35 years, and then you have to renegotiate, then it's 35 years and you have to renegotiate irregardless of what you contract to. You can't contract and say, okay, we're going to change the statute from 35 years to 40 years. You can't do that. It's not allowed. So, you know, and a lot of it's going to come down to what does renegotiate mean? Does renegotiate mean the ownership changes hands? Okay. That's going to be an important part because if it means the ownership changes back to the original owner and then the original owner can then renegotiate the terms of the sale, you know, that puts that original owner in a very powerful position with a lot of leverage, right? If the ownership stays with the Phillies, it takes a lot of that leverage away from the artist. Uh, not necessarily sure that that puts a whole lot of leverage in on the Phillies side, um, but it does help them in, in some scenarios. So that's where we are as we look at at that. And so the sides have attempted to seemingly possibly renegotiate this deal. However, both sides, uh, July or excuse me, June 15th was the date that the 35 years expired. And both sides have seemingly said, hey, we're going to go ahead and litigate this issue here. And one of the points that the Phillies are bringing up is, hey, you know what? It's been 35 years. We've changed the Philly fanatic over time. Uh, and actually coming into this 2020 season, they've changed the, the Philly fanatic a little bit more. And some of the question is going to come down to, if you change that copyright, how much do you need to change the Philly Fanatic that it no longer is its original form as it was back 35 years ago? That's going to become an important issue. Now, the artists are saying, hey, no, it's not. It's no different. It's still the same. And any small iteration changes to it don't really change the copyright. It's still the same Philly Fanatic. So therefore we are entitled to renegotiate our deal. And from, from everything that I've been able to find on the topic, it looks like they want to renegotiate the deal into the few million dollar range, which you know may not be a big deal to a, a team that's worth from last estimates in the billions of dollars, but it may set a dangerous precedent for some of these teams who may use outside firms to create these copyright pieces. Now, a lot of times when you have something that's in-house and you're a business and you have people who are creating uh, what we call intellectual property, so uh, the Philly Fanatic creation, that would be considered intellectual property, a lot of times you're indicating that the ownership never truly was with the artist, that the the ownership was always with the business, and, and you contract with that on the outset of or on the onset of when you make that original agreement and hire that person to work for you. So a lot of interesting pieces there. We come up to kind of a concept that I talk a little bit about with various different clients when we're, we're dealing with contract pieces. And that's, there's never a 
such thing as an ironclad contract. There's never a contract that you can go, there is no way we get into any litigation on this. You're always going to have what I call litigatable issues. Yeah, litigatable is not necessarily in the dictionary, but you're always going to have these points and these issues that someone can say, well, yes, the contract says this, but I interpret this, the, for example, the copyright piece, and when terms have to be renegotiated, I interpret it that we are owed more money and can, can ask for more money from it. And then you can have the other side of the camp saying, no, we've changed it, and therefore that provision actually doesn't even exist, and it doesn't matter because we've made something new. Okay, so that's what a litigatable issue is. You always have these pieces whenever you have any contract whatsoever that you can point to and go, I can make an argument that says X. And that's what a lot of litigation is about, is taking and saying, this is my position, this is how I interpret this, and this is the position I'm going to take. Uh, and that's why you know you, you may ask a lawyer a question and you don't get a straight answer. A lot of times you get a, well, it depends. Here's the, the things that can happen. And, and that's why, because there's all of these different pieces. I might read a contract and interpret it one way. There may be a colleague who looks at it and interprets it another way. We could be lawyers in the same office and interpret two contracts in different ways. Uh, matter of fact, I was talking to one of my associates the other day, and it was on a motion that I had written. And there was a piece that I interpreted the way I wrote it one way. And hey, I wrote it so I knew what I was trying to convey in that. He read it, and he had a little bit different interpretation on it. Now, as we talked about it, and I said, this is what where I was going with it, right? This was the thought process behind it. It was, oh yeah, I can see that. I can understand that. But if I'm just looking at the black and white words, this is how I interpret it. Now, I went back and reread it, and I said, hey, I still think that I interpret it the same way I meant it when I wrote it. So contracts are no different than that. And that is the legal process in a nutshell. It's everybody's interpretation of what these things look like and what these things feel like. Now, if we take it back to the Philadelphia Phillies scenario and the Philly fanatic, we're going to be looking at another issue as well. And it's going to be something that's going to be important for both sides to consider. And that is what type of trial do you have? And there's two types of trials that you can have. You can have what's called a non-jury trial, or you can have a jury trial. And in a non-jury trial, it's also called a bench trial. And what that means is, is that you just have a judge. You're in the courtroom, and it's no different than what you see on TV when there's a jury in place. However, you just have a judge, and the judge is the one making the ruling. So you have one person who's going to decide for both sides what the right answer is. Okay, Now, could that be appealed? Yes, it can, and you still have all the same appellate rights that you would if you had a jury trial, but instead of having a jury, you have a judge. And one, I think, of the important considerations that's going to come of this is, is this an emotional aspect because it's the Philly fanatic, or do you want to just look at the law in a vacuum? And that's going to be an important consideration because on the flip side of it, the other type of trial, as I mentioned, is a jury trial. And that's what you typically see when you watch TV or watch movies, you see a panel of either six or 12 jurors uh, that, that they use alternates now. So you'll see a panel of seven and you know 14 or 15, depending on the type of trial that you have. Uh, but six or 12 of those people are the actual decision makers. Okay, But you're dealing with real life people. 
you're dealing with people with emotions and you know they're instructed to follow the law but as a lay person going to follow the law the same way that a judge is going to and interpret the law the same way a judge is going to and remove emotion from it the same way a judge will not always okay uh, a lot of jury selection and jury trial doesn't necessarily come down to the law and a lot of times when we're looking at selecting juries we're looking at from a personality standpoint from a background standpoint uh, from whatever questions we're able to ask those panels of jurors and the answers that we're getting that's how we piece together who we want for a jury right so there is the emotional aspect from to it there is the real life person aspect to a jury trial and that is one of the major considerations so as you're filing your complaint and that is your ticket in the door for litigation so if i'm the philadelphia phillies and i'm filing this complaint saying hey we've changed the philly fanatic and therefore that copyright really doesn't matter anymore and and actually the way they're doing it is uh, essentially what we call in the alternative so they're saying the phillies are taking the stance of we contracted for forever forever means forever and it's not an end around on that 35 year law okay but pursuant to our contract we're entitled to that copyright forever okay and when I, when we're pleading that okay we would likely do and this is from what i understand from reading about what they're doing is or in the alternative we've changed the philadelphia fanatics so much that that original copyright doesn't matter because this is a brand new it's a different item it's a different copyright than the original one okay and as you're working through that process you have to make a determination of saying do i want a judge or do i want a jury now look i'm not really sure where you go in in one like this because i can make an argument for both sides i can make the argument that i want a bench trial because i want a judge involved who's going to follow the law to a t he is he or she is supposed to look at it and say, well, hey, this is the law. I can take all aspects of emotion out of it, and I can look at the black and white letter of the law. Okay, that's at least the idea. Now, look, we're still talking about real life people, and we're talking about a city that is love that loves their sports, right? I grew up around it. Philadelphia and South Jersey love their sports teams. They love the Phillies. They love the Eagles. They love the Sixers and they love the Flyers, right? It's huge there, huge, okay? So that said, the chances of you having a judge who is somewhat endeared to the Phillies, probably somewhat great, right? But that's just one person. So if you get that one judge who doesn't like sports, doesn't know much about sports, barely even knows who the Philadelphia Phillies are, which you know, I'm not sure that in that area you have much of that, but be that as it may, you could run into that. And what does that create? Right. And that creates that really emotionless letter of the law, black and white. This is what it says. And this is how we're going to follow it. Now, on the flip side, you could look at it and say, well, hey, you know what? I want that emotion and I want a jury to make that determination. So, you know, a lot of different aspects to it. And, you know, kind of as a general blanket rule, the more sophisticated and complex the issue is, and a lot of times with a copyrighted trademark, you end up with a bench trial. But I could also make the good argument that, hey, you, you want a jury because you have a city that's really passionate about their sports teams and that likely grew up around the Philadelphia Fanatic and that love of it. 
and couldn't imagine a Philadelphia Phillies game without the Philly Fanatic. And honestly, that's what we're kind of looking at for 2020 because the Philly Fanatics are not allowed on the field. None of the mascots are allowed on the field. So I'm not really sure how that's going to look and feel. Um, the Philly Fanatic was always kind of cool because he would jump down and he would harass some of the visiting players and do different antics. So it was always kind of a neat little aside that was always uh, a little fun and, and funny. But that's what we're looking at here. So 35 years on the copyright. That expired in June. And now both sides are suing each other for the rights to that copyright and who owes who what money. So be interesting to see how that plays out as we get ready for the 2020 60-game baseball season, which starts this week. And uh, we'll be following this story as it matures and gets into litigation. That brings us to listener question of the day. And as I mentioned earlier, that listener question came in through Facebook. So I appreciate that. Appreciate you guys all following that. And actually, while we're on the topic of Facebook and social media, before we dive into that question, what we're going to do today is I'm going to grab a picture of the Philadelphia Fanatic from the 70s when he was originally created. Uh, was it the 70s? Uh, I don't think so. It was probably the 80s. Okay. Um, but anyway, 35 years ago, the original Philadelphia Fanatic, which was created 35 years ago, which would put it in the 80s, not the 70s. Really bad math. I apologize about that. But be it as it may, I'm going to put on our social media the original Philadelphia Phillies, Philly Fanatic. That's a mouthful there. And then right next to it, a picture of the current Philly Fanatic. And I want to get your comments on what you think. Is the Philly Fanatic substantially different now than it was then. So let's take a look at that. Please interact with me on social media. Let me know your thoughts on that once we get that up and posted. Okay. But let's take it back to the listener question. And the listener question is this. I was in a car crash. I've lost time from work. I want my PIP benefits to pay my lost wages and not pay the doctors. Okay. Really interesting question. So let's start from the beginning here real quick. PIP. All right, and the, the person who submitted the question actually used the term PIP. Uh, that's personal injury protection. That's your Florida no-fault coverage. That covers the first 10000 of your medical bills, Okay, but it can also cover your lost wages, which is very important and, and really right to the point here with this question. So can your personal injury protection cover your lost wages? Yes, it can. Okay, We have to be able to document those lost wages and... Most of the insurance companies have their own forms that we get from them. And basically, it's a log, and you fill out the time that you missed from work, and it gets submitted to them. And your insurance, your personal injury protection insurance, can cover some of those lost wages. Now, look, that $10,000 bucket is always just $10,000, unless you have purchased uh, greater than $10,000, which I I don't think I've seen um, more than once or twice over my entire career of someone purchasing more than the $10,000 in personal injury protection coverage. It, it, it's available, but like I said, I've only seen it one or two times. So you still have that $10,000 pool of money and that doesn't change. So you're moving that money around, but if the money's going to the doctors, it's going straight to the doctors. It doesn't go to you to then pay the doctors. When the doctors submit their billing, it goes straight to them. So you're never seeing a dollar of that. The only way you as the individual insured can see any money from your personal injury protection coverage is through your lost wages. Now, there are other vehicles for us to recover your lost wages as well, and that would be through the at-fault driver. So Florida has the no-fault provisions. 
which is that $10,000. Anything over and above that, we do start to determine fault, and it goes on to the at-fault driver. So your medical bill's over the $10,000, and actually, it's officially 80% of your medical bills up to $10,000. You, as the insured, are responsible for the other 20%. We flip that 20% off to the at-fault driver when we're talking about the medical bills. And then when you have lost wages, we flip that off to the at-fault driver as well. Little different scenario, though, because your personal injury protection, for the most part, pretty much has to pay you, okay, and has to pay your doctors, and it's regardless of fault. There are ways that they can get around paying, but they can't go, hey, that injury wasn't caused from that crash, or, hey, you caused the crash, so we're not paying you. PIP doesn't get to make that determination. When we move it over to the at-fault side, and we're going over and above that, that determination gets to be made, and that's where having a lawyer comes into play. Uh, that's what we do all day, every day. And uh, you know, if you have any other questions on that or want a deeper dive detail on it, please reach out to me. Uh, you can reach out to me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at uh, The Law Father. If you just search at The Law Father, you'll find us. There's a couple different iterations between Twitter and Instagram. And you can always call 855-LAW-FATHER. You can also text us there. Uh, one little piece, if you can't remember or you want to text us and you don't know what law father comes out for the number, you can reach us at 813-800-4529. All right, text me. Those all come to my cell phone, all those different places, and I try to respond to everybody pretty quickly, uh, really as quickly as I can, which sometimes is immediately and sometimes it takes a little bit of time if I'm in a meeting or something else. But Please do reach out. I do enjoy those listener questions. And as always, I do answer them live on the air. So all I get is the question and I don't create any notes. And those of you watching on video can see that I'm not reading any notes as I answer those questions. So that is the show for today. Please get ready for the 60-game baseball season that starts this week. And hopefully that springboards us to some sort of NFL season and as an NFL agent I'm sure as we move into the training camp phase we're going to be talking NFL so look for that in the coming weeks but as I mentioned that is the show for today Lawfather out this is a live bold and boss up quick fix on radio influence Today, our guest is a very close friend of both of ours and my mentor for a while now. He has over 25 years experience as an executive and entrepreneur in the professional staffing industry. He is currently president and co-founder of Next Path Career Partners. Welcome, D-Rod, Dan Rodriguez. Welcome. And let's be clear, guys. um, I mean, most of the folks that were that we're talking to our audience or in some type of, you know, sales organization. And, um, you know, when you're in sales, I mean, it's, if you don't have a relationship with your boss, that's a flunk. Um, and you know, everything you're selling to customers, you're selling internally, you're selling externally. That's very important. You have to build a relationship with your boss so that you can, step outside of the work environment and get real. And whether it's about a compensation increase or another type of issue that you're having at work, I think that successful companies have leaders that are receptive to uh, employees that want to have 
you know, personal relationships with them. Um, one of the things that I always enjoyed at, at Veritas was, and at Next Path was having folks come to work and, you know, seeing them, you know, get married, have kids, build houses, grow in their career. That was always something that I really enjoyed. So I think letting your boss in is a, is a, that's a part of your career and it's, and it's very important. Live Bold and Boss Up with Stephanie Marchese and Ashley Jiraki can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, and RadioInfluence.com.